Um, I want to invite up Travis and Natasha Phillips, um, who are part of our family here, and uh, by extension um, of ABC, they're out in the Philippines, um, literally going and telling the world about him, right? We sang that song just for you, so I planned it for you. You're welcome. Uh, we're so grateful you're here. Travis and Natasha grew up at ABC, came from ABC, and um, and they have, uh, with obedience, just walked through a, a pretty rigorous training process with Ethnos 360 um, to to be sent out. And so they've been gone a couple of years now um, out in the Philippines, and they've, uh, as any kind of, you know, mission um, organization would, you know, they have an onboarding process, really, that they want you to learn the culture and the language and get your footings and um, really try to figure out um, how you're going to approach the, the different people group concept and really do some surveys to figure out where are the, the needs the greatest on the island and how can we share the gospel and even participate in some Bible translation efforts in that process. So you guys have been through that process. It's a lot. You know, it's, it's been a while. Um, but now you're here and we get to hear from you and, and just hear how God's using that process to equip you and train you. And so tell us a little bit about that and an update on where that's at. And then we'll talk a little bit about uh, as you guys head back in January, what you're going to be to. Sure. Thank you so much. Um, I just wanted to start off by saying um, how grateful we are for ABC. Um, As I was just sitting here this morning, I was thinking about all the opportunities that ABC has given um, me personally, as well as Travis, um, to go to different places in the world to see how the Lord is working through uh, missionaries and just in um, the national churches all around the world. Um, Been able to go to Mexico and Costa Rica and Romania and Indonesia through ABC. And that just really um, uh, encouraged our hearts um, to pursue uh, full-time missions. So I just wanted to just say thank you to all of you for that. Good morning. Um, It's just good morning in Bisayat. Uh, the last couple of years, we have been learning the Bisayat language and the culture of the southern Philippines. We live on an island of about 26 million people, and there are over 20 languages on the island, and so we've been learning the trade language Bisayat. Um, Natasha and I have had the privilege of spending about 1,500 hours in one-on-one language learning with native speakers, and that includes... Um, entering into their lives um, because they're in our home, we're hearing their their stories, and um, yeah, entering into the joys and the fears that they're going through on a daily basis. So that's been our our last couple yeah. of years. And you hit the mark. I mean, you guys got to the point where they said, "Yeah, you you're fluent," and you guys. Um, it's time to move to the next phase, and we're super excited to hear how God's going to take you to those different places and explore. Where's the need the greatest? Tell us a little bit about that and what's next. Okay. Um, yeah, by the grace of God, we, we, we both passed our final language evaluation in October, and now we are beginning the initial assessments to figure out, okay, where is the gospel most needed? Um, so we're going to be going into the mountains to um, have conversations with different people groups and to find out what is the status of the church, are there believers here, is there any Bible translation that's been done in your language, if not, how similar is your language to this other language over here that maybe does have some Bible translation. Um, So it's a lot of work, and um, 
we would really value your prayers. Yeah, and as you guys go back, so you're here for about a month, right? And if, by the way, if you guys want to um, spend a little more time with Travis and Natasha, they would love that. Um, uh, invite them to lunch and pay the bill. And then, um, <laughs> and then uh, you get to hear a little bit more about what God is doing through their ministry. But what we really want to do is we, we want to be able to pray for you guys really well you know, as you head back. So you're here for about a month, then you're going back. Um, what's the family rhythm like? Natasha, you talk about you know, the girls and where they're at in their life stage. And then uh, you've got this new assignment coming up too in the process that's going to take a little bit of time and energy. So share us about that. Yeah, um, so you can see our girls up on the screen there. They um, overslept this morning, so they'll be coming later. But um, that's Eleanor. She's five, and Lily is three. And I'm currently homeschooling both of them, kindergarten and preschool, um, as well as doing my language studies. And, um, yeah, we would just love prayers for them as they had a um, difficult time adjusting, but thanks to the Lord, they are doing really well. And um, just would love prayers as we go back um, that they would adjust well back home and they would be excited to be back in our home. Um, and um, yeah, so our next uh, job that we are going to be doing is um, leading the E2 program, which is uh, basically just helping new missionaries that are coming to our field uh, adjust to life in the Philippines. We take them to the doctor. We'll take them... Um, all around the city, get them um, acclimated, and uh, help them as they are um, learning language and culture and um, overseeing their language helpers. Uh, as problems arise, we'll be, you know, putting out little fires and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, we were asked to do that, and it was kind of out of left field for us, but we really believe that's what the Lord's calling us to do for the next um, year and then after that, hopefully moving into a village. That's amazing. Just to even think about the journey you've been on and then uh, learning language, get your mind around the community and how things work in the community, and then for your organization to tap you and say, okay, time for you to teach others how to learn the language and adjust to the community um, says a lot about your posture in the community and, um, and even just your willingness to serve that way. So, congratulations. That's huge, you guys. And we're going to be praying for you that way. Um, and just trust that God's going to take you to the right place. I know that's on your heart. Um, what's the specific area and region that God might have us um, land in longer term? So we want to pray that way too. So I'm going to pray for you this morning. Father, thank you so much for Travis and Natasha. Thank you for the way that you've directed them. God, you have provided for them. You've opened the doors for them to be here where they are in the Philippines. And we ask, God, that you would continue by the work of your Holy Spirit with good discernment and wisdom to direct them to the right relationships, the right locations, um, and the investment of time in the right areas of ministry. So, Lord, we're trusting for you to take them there. And we also ask, just from a very practical standpoint, um, we know you can cover so many details and make things... Um, contribute to to the the end goal and so i'm asking that you orchestrate all these things and in the process lord would you um, provide favor we ask for you to protect the health of their girls even through throughout the holidays here and getting back on a plane and all of that, that entails lord i just ask that you deliver them back home safely to the philippines healthy and they'd be ready to jump in and engage and that some of the missionaries even that are coming that they're going to be helping um, to acclimate would be uh, great friendships and ministry partnerships that grow over time. Lord, that these would be um, fruitful for them in the process as well. So we're so grateful for them. Thank you, Lord, for um, allowing us 
by extension, um, to be in the Philippines with Travis and Natasha, and I just ask that they would continue to feel loved and supported and, um, and held up in prayer by their church family here at home. It's in your name I pray. Amen. And on the screen real quick, as they're walking off, thank you guys for being here. Um, that's their website, ProclaimTheLord.com, if you want more information. Um, or if you want to scan that QR code, because they're 21st century missionaries, um, you can hold your camera up, and uh, that takes you to their website where you can sign up for a newsletter. You can also contact them through that. Um, but if you want to get regular updates, you can get those right there through their website. So we are in uh, Matthew chapter 28. It's the final passage, and if you were with us last week, we looked at the first part of this passage um, in the authority of Christ. If you missed it, um, it's really worth going back and listening because it really sets up a really helpful um, premise for the discussion we're going to have this morning. Um, We're going to basically take the Great Commission, and uh, last week we talked about authority. This week we're talking about the go, make disciples of all nations, and next week we'll talk about the fact that God is with us. Um, which I couldn't imagine a more fitting Christmas message um, than both Jesus Christ preaching us to go um, to all the nations and then for him to say, and I'm going to be with you. And really that's even the nature of that song that we sang is God is going to be with us. So if you've got your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. I don't know if you have trouble finishing projects um, like I do, uh, but certainly a problem in my house finishing just me. Nobody has trouble. Yeah, that's okay. Um, so, uh, I have in our front of our house, I call it the lawn. Um, there once was grass there. Every time I say the lawn to my kids, they look at me with a blank stare because there hasn't been grass for six years. Uh, when we had twins join our home, um, the grass died for some reason. I don't know why. And um, we can't keep grass on the lawn. But in that season, I've tilled it up three times. I borrowed the neighbor's tractor and came by and, you know, like did the whole thing. In fact, last year I even spent $600 on topsoil to get it all ready and I was going to plant seed and it was going to be amazing. And then I missed my window. So this year, same thing, you know, I call the neighbor. Um, My neighbor, Bob, by the way, is amazing. He's like this really sweet um, older guy and uh, he lives right out in front of our house. And I say, hey, Bob, I'm going to use a tractor. I'm going to do the lawn, you know, and he just leans back and looks at me like this. Like, really? Are you though? You, you really, you are? Yeah, you take the tractor. You know, and he's kind of snickering like, we'll see. I'll believe it when I see it. So someday we might have a lawn, but we have a hard time finishing things in our house. Um, we have, you know, pleasure in finishing though, don't we? I mean, I just, I love finishing a project and just like sitting back and enjoying that finished pro- We had some friends that um, actually built a pool at their house. And uh, when that pool was finished, they called a bunch of friends and they said, hey, the pool's finished. Come on over. We're going to enjoy the pool. And we had a pool party and you just barbecue out at the pool and you turn, you know, turn the jacuzzi on and get it hot. And it's everyone sitting back and enjoying the finished project of the pool. And Jesus, similar to finishing a pool, although far more significant, I would argue, has no problem finishing projects. Jesus does, in fact, finish everything he set out to do. And when he started this project at Christmas, which was the project to redeem all of mankind, when he came at Christmas as a child, he finished what he started on the cross. So the cross of Jesus Christ is the finished work of Christmas. What started at Christmas with a baby coming to this earth was finished on the cross as Jesus was crucified, providing forgiveness and atonement for all of humanity, all of mankind, and then he rose again 
And then he circled up with his disciples and he gave them these instructions. And these instructions were essentially what we call the Great Commission, were essentially an invitation to enjoy the finished work of Christmas. So he's saying to his disciples, guys, the, the project's done. The work is finished. The pool's ready. Come enjoy. Come bask in the finished project of Christmas. And by the way, invite all your friends. Tell them all to come. Because it's going to be great. And that's the Great Commission. The finished work of Christmas, the finished work of Christ done on the cross. Jesus now giving us an invitation to enjoy the finished work. Here we read in Matthew chapter 16, or chapter 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Side note on that for just a minute. There's grief in that in that sentence. There were eleven, not twelve, that went. Think about the context here as we read this, what's taking place in the life of these disciples in their lens. Verse 17, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. This was 11 people who had followed Jesus faithfully, who had walked the way he walked, who had tried to do the things he told them to do, and they all show up on the mountain, 11 minus 1, 12 minus 1, and some doubted. And then he said to them, all 11 of them, not just the ones who weren't doubting, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, my favorite part, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's a beautiful passage. You've probably read it before. Maybe you've studied it. You might have even heard a sermon about it. This is Jesus' great commission. He's commissioning his followers to be a part of his project. He's saying the work is done. Now go invite people to come enjoy the work. Go invite people to live the way I've instructed you to live. I told you how to do this. I demonstrated it. And then I provided a way for you to do it, and now I'm just simply telling you to go invite others to join in that. But before we get there, there is this authority clause. So we have the therefore, which means we've got to look back above that and read the fact that Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. Now, we, we, read, we talked about that last week. I'm not going to go into much detail, but the, the fact is that the authority of Jesus in this instance throughout the gospel of Matthew has been tested and it's been validated and it's been proved trustworthy. The authority of Christ means everything as we read this commandment because the commandment really has no teeth if he doesn't have the authority. Jesus, in fact, predicted his own execution all the way back in Matthew chapter 26, a couple of chapters ago. He predicted his resurrection in John chapter 2. He said, destroy this temple. In three days, I'll raise it up again. He willingly submitted himself to death. In Matthew 26, we see the crucifixion. He yielded up his spirit. Gerald talked about this a few weeks ago. Matthew 27, he yielded up his spirit. That means it wasn't taken from him. He submitted himself to death and his body laid limp and lifeless in a tomb. He wasn't half dead. He was all dead and laid in a tomb. And in three days, just as he predicted, he rose again. Which means 
that the authority of God, the authority of the creator of the universe descended back on Jesus, validating everything he said. See, Jesus actually yielded his. He gave his authority up. That's the whole story of Christmas. He came as a child, a baby, and it says in Philippians chapter 2 that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus, the baby God, emptied himself yielding his authority, giving it up for a season. And then he walked through this project until it was completed, until it was finished. And at that time, his authority resumed, descended back on him. Paul continues in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name or bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, that's the glory and the authority of God descending back on Jesus at the finished work of Christmas. And then he says to his disciples, all that authority that I yielded, all the authority that I gave up, I've got it back now. I have all the authority of heaven and earth. All the power of the creator of the universe is behind me and backing me. Therefore, when we get right here into verse 19, we have to pay close attention to his instructions. If that's all true. In other words, the therefore is there because he's discussing, he's establishing his authority. And if that's true, if Jesus has all authority, which I believe he does, and he did, then I need to pay really close attention to what he's about to say. I need to lean in. These are the words of life. So, Jesus then says, go. See, the finished work of Christmas on the cross is an invitation for us to go. Invitation for us to join, if you want to look at it that way. That word go is problematic and confusing for us. In fact, for centuries it's been because the ultimate question or the immediate question when you read the word go is where, right? I mean, that's, that's the age-old church question. What does Jesus mean when he says go? Does it mean every single person has to geographically move their location in order to tell others about Jesus? I don't think so. But for some, it does. For some, it's meant moving to the Philippines, like Travis and Natasha Phillips. That's obedience for them. For others, it's meant they've left their hometown and moved to a bigger city where they had the opportunity to share the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ with others who were lost. For some, it means never leaving their hometown, and yet a strong call to go is to go across the street or to go across the office hallway. But the point is, Jesus' command is to go. The problem is we have this unhealthy kind of elitist mentality that we mix in that sort of shades our view of what Jesus is saying here. So we somehow think it's more spiritual if you move to the Philippines. We somehow think it's more obedient if you go to Africa because Jesus said, go. But I want to argue that that's not what he intended. In fact, if you kind of 
pick apart, which I've taken some time to do, the language that's here in the words of Jesus. That word go is interesting because there are other words go in the New Testament that use the Greek root word hypago, which is a geographical word. So go over there. Go from here to there. Go get me some coffee. Serious. Um, Go is a geographical action word. That's not the word Jesus uses in this. He uses a different Greek word. And in his Greek version, it's much more of an embark. Let go of your current position. It becomes this very positional word instead of like a postural word instead of a geographical command. The go that Jesus uses is different. In fact, in our modern day vernacular, I would argue that we could better translate it as move. Move. Lean forward in your seat. Instead of sitting back. Do you see the difference? It's not saying go to your office or go to your coffee shop or go to your school or go to your neighbors just simply to go. No, there's this this active, I'm going with a purpose. It's a difference between me telling my kids in the morning, getting ready for school, it's time for you to go, which I believe I say that quite often. And my, my wife stopping me after a really long, hard week, knowing I need to go for a Sabbath break, when she grabs my shoulders and looks at me in the eyes and says, it's time for you to go. Those are two very different statements, but the exact same words. So that the posture matters and the context matters. Jesus is saying, move from this place where you've received the words of life. Move from the place where you're relatively comfortable, right? It's good to be with Jesus. It's good to enjoy the pool. It's good to see the finished work of Christ. He's saying, but, but move, lean in, lean forward. Depart to the unknown to share these words of life, to share this basking in the finished work of Christ. So that the actual grammatical content matter. So this go is an, what's called an errorist participle. Just follow me for a second. The make disciples is an errorist imperative, which means the make disciples, that's the central part of the sentence. That's the verb. That's the action is make disciples. And the only reason the word go is there is to modify the imperative. So the go is to modify make disciples. Go for the purpose of making disciples. It's not just go for go's sake. It's not just get up for get up's sake or move for move's sake. It's move to make disciples. Finishing the work of Christmas, Jesus says, now it's time for you to join. And it's time for you to go, get up, lean in, and make disciples. We've spent a great deal of time and energy at ABC talking about discipleship. In fact, if you were to read through our seven core values of kind of our DNA of ABC. The third one is we will become intentional. We use that word become because we recognize that we're not, um, we're not finished yet. We're all in process. We're growing in this. But we will become intentional with discipleship. It's an important, it's an imperative. In fact, it's, it's one of only seven things that we think defines us as a church and should really define every church that Jesus gives this clear command to make disciples. So what does that mean? I think what he's saying here, and I think what is clearly demonstrated in the, the pages following this historical moment, is that there's relationship 
where people continue to introduce others to the finished work of Christ. And in some sense, that's very simple, and in some sense, it's very complex. See, the, the command actually requires proximity. It requires relationship, which, which is hard, right? This isn't a command to go pass out tracks on the street corner. It's not a command to go on a short-term mission trip and host a VBS for little kids in a developing country. These things are not bad. In fact, there's tons of fruit in some of those things, but that's not the command to make disciples. The command to make disciples is this ongoing relationship where you're teaching others of the finished work of Christ, where you're inviting others to see and to bask and to revel in the amazing finished project that Jesus completed at the cross. So it requires longevity in some extent, requires relationship, and therefore it gets messy. It's probably easier than you suspect to make disciples, but probably harder than you realize. It's easier than you suspect because you probably already have the relationships. It, it's probably someone in your house. It might be your children. It could be your neighbor. It could be someone that you share the lunchroom with at work. It's probably someone you know. So it's way easier than you realize. But more complex and more harder than you realize because once you enter into someone else's story and their life, it becomes messy. And I'm not going to sugarcoat that or try to soft sell that to you because discipleship is hard. Jesus commands us to do it, so we're going to do it. But I just want to let you know it's hard. And the reason is because when you cross the threshold of shallow or pretentious relationship where you stay at this level where you just demonstrate all the things that our culture says you should demonstrate and you go deeper to another level, you begin to understand hurt. You begin to hear of pain. You begin to own others' hurt and pain. You realize that there are things that they haven't worked out yet. There are hard questions. There are difficult habits. There are addictions. There are things below that surface that when you cross that threshold and enter into that space, it becomes very messy. And so Jesus says, go make disciples. And he promises to be with us knowing that there is going to be some complexity to that process. It requires us continually bringing that mess to the feet of Jesus. It continues to provide opportunity for us to sit with people in their pain and say, I know where to take this. I know what to do with that. I know where to go for answers. I know how to help. I can pray. I can point you to truth. I can bring you, literally bring you to the feet of Jesus. Let's go sit with Jesus and allow for him to speak over you because he's the one that can heal your pain. He's the one that can resolve your questions. He's the one that can ultimately show you a path forward in this mess. It's far easier than you realize and maybe more complex than you understand, but that's part of discipleship. I appreciate some of the biblical examples because it gives us a little bit of a roadmap and we start to understand how things play out over time. I love this um, 
story of Paul with the young Timothy discipleship relationship. We talk about that kind of often. You know, you hear about there's some things between the lines, though, that you might miss. So Paul is on this journey. He's going on a mission. He's really like the first missionary in the New Testament. So he's traveling all around East Asia. He's planting churches. He's visiting churches. And he's stopping by, you know, to encourage the leadership and resolve any problems and clarify things. And he's going, no, no, no. Remember, this is what Jesus said. Remember, this is what we're supposed to It's just this constant kind of um, encouragement as he goes to these churches. So he stops in this little town in the middle of Turkey called Lystra. And Paul ends up staying in Lystra for like two years. And while he's staying in this little town of Lystra, the elders, the leaders of the church say, Hey, Paul, we think you should meet Timothy. So they kind of stage this relationship. So they introduce Paul to Timothy and Timothy and Paul hit it off. And Paul's like, you got something. There's something in you I see. There's leadership. There's value. There's hunger. There's a spark. So Paul starts to invest in him, and they start hanging out. So much to the point when he's ready to leave and go on and encourage other churches and go continue doing his missionary journey, his work, he says, hey, you know what, Timothy, why don't you come with me? Timothy's like, really? You want me to, you want me to move and like travel? Yeah, why don't you come with me? Okay. So he goes, and we see this amazing relationship form. Now, it looks really rosy. Look at what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 1. To Timothy, Paul writes, My beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayer. Night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this, re- this reason, I remind you to fan into flame. He just keeps going on and on and on, kind of like gushing over Timothy. He's like, you're just such a good kid. Like, you're so gifted. And man, I love you so much. And I miss you when you're not here. And I see gifts in you. And I see strength in you. It's just this whole relationship. We go, yes, that's discipleship. I'm going to find a young Timothy and I'm going to like invest in him. And then the problem is like things start to unravel and we get disillusioned because it doesn't work out the way Paul and Timothy are working out. And you start to realize, man, I don't know if this is what I signed up for, let me let you in on a little Paul Timothy secret if it looks so rosy. Remember that Timothy, well, you wouldn't maybe know, but Timothy's mother and his grandmother were Jews. Timothy's father was a Gentile, which creates a whole bunch of problem for him. In fact, some serious identity issues. If you think some of our kids are disillusioned today and having struggle with their identity issues, this is a kid who grew up in a non-Jewish culture with a Gentile dad and a Jewish mom, and he doesn't bear the name that all of his friends bear, and he doesn't have the history or the tradition or the Hebrew background that all of those other people have, and so he's conflicted constantly. And then Paul says, hey, I'm going to take you on this missionary journey. It's going to be great. And Timothy's like, yes, okay, I'm going to be somebody, right? Like I'm going with the apostle Paul. And Paul says, hey, by the way, um, we're going to circumcise you. What? Well, hold on a second. What do you mean? You're the one that said it's neither Greek or Jew or slave or free or man or woman, but all is in Christ and in all. Why in the world would I need to do that? He's already torn and confused about his non-Jewish background. And then Paul says, yeah, but to the people that we're going to, you're going to need the credibility. Tell me that's not messy and confusing and hard and painful. 
How do you make sense of that? You bring it to Jesus. How does Timothy, who's already wrestling, I'm not a Jew, I wish I was, I wish my dad had a different name. I'm going to go to these people and they're not going to respect me. I know my mom's been praying for me, my grandma's just working through all of this stuff, trying to figure it out, he's feeling empowered and he's got this mentor and then this and it feels like a betrayal, right? Like, really? That, that's the very thing I was afraid of, that I wasn't good enough, as I am. So Paul says, we're going to bring it to Jesus. Because the work was finished. It was done. The, the work of Christmas was finished on the cross with the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, and he is capable of holding all of that and all the pain and all the confusion there. We're going to bring it to Jesus. That's what discipleship is. It's not figuring it out. It's not having all the answers. It's not necessarily having a path forward. It's being able to hold someone else in your hands and say, I'm going to carry you to the feet of Jesus until we figure this out. It's not easy, but it's simple. So we're called Go make disciples. The finished work of Christ, the finished work of Christmas is an invitation for us to bring others along to see the finished work of Christ. And then he says we're to go to all the nations, which again is complex. Sounds very easy, sounds very simple. We actually read this with a very narrow mind. We think, of course you would go to all the nations. Isn't that what the UN is for? No, it's different. Different topic. But remember that when Jesus says this to a very, very Jewish audience, they had in mind a very specific idea of what the Redeemer was coming to do. So look back at Isaiah chapter 9. This is a famous Christmas passage, a Christmas prophecy. It says in Isaiah 9, 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now we read that and we think, that's Jesus, yes! He's the coming Messiah. Jesus is here, it's Christmas. But to the people this passage was written to, and to the disciples, these 11 Jewish young men, they believed and understood that passage was written this way. To us, to Israel, to Hebrews, to our chosen race, our royal people, our set-apart nation. It was a very ethnocentric audience that did not understand this passage to mean for all nations. So when Jesus says, go make disciples, the first part they're getting their heads around, okay, you made me a disciple, I can make others a disciple. And then he says, all nations. What? Like other regions of Israel, right? No, all nations. Jesus blows their mind for a minute. And you and I read this and, and we think, thank God for that, because that's you and me, right? Last time I checked, the United States of America was not included in the chosen race of Israel in the Old Testament. I'm sorry if that's news to you. God bless America is a bumper sticker, not a passage of Scripture. 
We are the all nations, right? We have benefited from the all nations. So when we read this, it just rolls off the ears because we think, yeah, of course, all nations. But when, when the Jewish audience is receiving this command, their entire paradigm is shifted and they start to think different. And it was really critical and really important for Jesus to do this because he specifically honed in on the Jews. If you look at his work, at the by and large, there are some examples, but by and large, all of the Gospels are focused on a Jewish audience that Jesus was directly speaking to Jews. And so now he shifts and he says, by the way, the work is done. The pool's built. And it's your job to invite all of the neighbors. And don't just invite them from our neighborhood, but go across to the other side of town. Go to the east side of town. Go a little farther even. Go, invite everyone. There is no exclusivity in the finished work of Christ. And it's mind-blowing for them, but beautiful. And the most beautiful representation I could think of this is when the church is born in Acts chapter 2. There's just this beautiful passage of what takes place. As Peter's sharing his first sermon and preaches the gospel... Listen to what it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 6, as uh, the Holy Spirit descends on this group. Verse 6 says, And at the sound of the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these our Galileans, or are all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to the Cyrene and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? It means all nations. And so Jesus blows the lid off for these narrow-minded Jews saying, you're going to take it to the ends of the earth. Which is at very minimum for us as ethnocentric Americans a call to remember that we are not special. We are not set apart. We are called to go to anywhere and everywhere and to the ends of the earth to all nations, to invite people to the pool party. So he calls us to enjoy the finished work of Christmas and invite others to join in the finished work of Christmas. I love this passage in Revelation that starts to just sort of speak of the end, chapter 5. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scrolls, and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. That's the finished work right there. And then it says, from every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Do you see what that's saying? Is that on screen? Yeah, look at that. So, the first three lines. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people for God. Boom. Finished work of Christmas. Done. 
And then it's a big, huge invitation to the party from every tribe and language. That's the guest list. Every tribe and language and people of the nation. You have made them a kingdom of priests. And listen, here's the party. They shall reign on the earth. That's the Great Commission. So clear, so simple, so messy. There's a chance that you're asking one of two questions as we conclude, and I'm going to pray in just a second. If you believe this, if you've embraced faith in Jesus Christ, and you believe he has all authority, and you're reading this word, these commands, go make disciples of all nations, there's a chance you're probably asking one of two questions. The first question is who. You might be asking who. And I think that's a really good question. I'm, I'm not answering that for you. I'm just simply encouraging you to keep asking that. Who is it? Is it the children in my home? Yeah, them. Is it also my extended family? Yeah, probably them too. Is it my neighbor? Not my neighbor, please. Yeah, it's probably your neighbor. Is it my coworker? Is it someone I haven't met yet? Is it someone that lives far away? Yeah, maybe them too. Am I supposed to go somewhere and find someone? Maybe. I don't know what the answer is for you, but I want to simply encourage you to keep asking who. And the second question is how, and that's far messier and far harder as we talked about, but I want to give you a very overly simplistic answer to how. In other words, when you meet those people, when you enter into their mess, you start walking through the relationships with them. The how is very complicated, but I can simply start with you by saying, bring them to the feet of Jesus. Just simply bring them. Say, I don't know how to solve those problems, but I, I, the guy who trained me on this stuff, Jesus, the person I'm trying to help you follow, he knows. So I'm going to take you back to him. So let's go over and, and let's go talk to Jesus about it. In other words, you don't need to come up with the answers. You don't need to have a method. You don't need to have a handbook. You don't need to figure out all of the answers to all the questions that someone might ask you. You don't have to resolve all of their problems. You don't have to therapeutically provide for every single one of their pain points. All you have to do is bring them to the feet of Jesus and say, I don't know how to solve that, but I know who does. That's the how. I know it's more complicated. But that's a great starting point. So if you're asking one of those two questions, let me simply encourage you to keep asking who. And let me encourage you, if you're asking that second question, to start by bringing them to the feet of Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we're so honored to be invited into this work. Just thinking about the idea that the, the work is done, that there is nothing we can do now to earn favor or salvation because the work is done. The project's finished. You're not inviting us over to pick up a shovel. You're inviting us over to enjoy. You're inviting us to bask in the finished project. So, Lord, would you help us resist the urge to pick up a shovel and help us to lean in to the call to invite. That's all you're asking of us to do. 
We're not working for our salvation. We're inviting others to your salvation. And help us to make sense of all the gaps that exist between those two. And help us to fill in the blanks on the how, because we know it's more complicated than that. We trust the leadership of the Holy Spirit and the sovereignty of your word and the wisdom that you've allowed for us to have in front of us through these pages and ask that you would fill in the rest. Direct us, God. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.